good morning. Uh, it's great to see you all. Uh, you made it through the blistering cold. One of my friends yesterday said, this is the kind of cold that makes you just randomly curse out of nowhere. Just, 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 just got to let it out. Um, but it's good to spend time with you today in God's house. If you're new or visiting, thank you for being here. Uh, it's a blessing that you're with us. My name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the word today. Last week, we started a new series called The Law of the Lord, moving through Psalm 19, one of the most beautiful poems in Scripture, and we're breaking it down a verse at a time. The first six verses were about God's nature revelation, the heavens and earth declaring his majesty, and they set us up for the rest of the chapter, which is about God's special written revelation to us. If you missed last week's sermon, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to consider how creation draws us toward uh, God's word. Well, today we're looking at the first half of verse 7. Let me read it for us, and then we'll get into it. Psalm 19, 7a. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, you are our source of life. Help us not to lose sight of that. And keep us close to your promises and commands in your name. Amen. Well, the question we'll be answering today is, what does it mean for God's law to be life-giving? What does it mean for God's law to be life-giving? Three points to explore that. Number one, the law is God's will. Number two, the law is God's perfection. And number three, the law is God's restoration. First, the law is God's will. So, verses 7 through 9 give us a list of six names and characteristics of God's written word. And today's verse begins that list with the phrase, the law of the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, that's just one word, Torah, referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deut uh, Deuteronomy. And that was the whole scripture back in the day. Torah was the comprehensive term for God's written revelation. That's why the psalmist opens with it as an umbrella term. And if you read those five books, you notice a theme. And that is that God continuously instructs his people how to live under his will and character, not theirs or other gods, right? You see that just in Genesis 2, right, when the scripture begins, when he commands Adam not to eat of a tree in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there was nothing special about the tree itself, but it was God asserting his authority over Adam and telling Adam that he was created to thrive when he submits to the, uh, his creator. And when Adam put himself in God's place and took the fruit anyway, it was that curse of self-will over God's will that carried into the generations. It's the same thing with the Tower of Babel, people asserting their will over God's. And even though God had to judge people for that throughout the years, he never gave up, uh, gave up on them completely. He continued to reintroduce his will so they could learn it again. This is how I want you to live, my people. This is how I made you to thrive. 
Now, one of the clearest examples of that is when he gives the Israelites his Ten Commandments through Moses after saving them from Egypt, right? It's his instructions on how to be a new people through his will. And even that law we call a covenant of grace because he doesn't wait for his people to obey him before reconnecting with them. He reconnects with them first and then shows them how to respond day by day through these instructions, all by grace, purifying them. Let's pause there. Family of God, you are made to submit to God's will in your day to day. That's part of what it means for his law to be life-giving for you. Uh, and that involves pausing and shaping your goals around what seems most pleasing to him that day. Stopping to ask what's right, even if it means setting aside something you've desired for a long time. See, you might not know exactly what job or path you're supposed to take. Maybe you're wrestling with the fork in the road right now. And God's not going to condemn you one way or another. He wants you to do your best to make the right choice. But one of the ways we learn how to make the right choice is to breathe and make his word a central part of our diet. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who chews on God's law day and night. See, there's so many instances when we don't know exactly what we're supposed to do, but it's treasuring what he did give us in Scripture that teaches us how to be patient or wise or loving in our hearts as we make our choices. Life decisions are rarely just logical, right? They're spiritual, which means they involve our emotions, our desires and longings, and these things are shaped by what happens in our daily routine. What would it look like for God's Word to be a central part of that. In that Netflix documentary, You Are What You Eat, you realize just how much the various processed meats, the fats and carbs, gradually over time, shapes what you look like and how you think, and you start to readjust your meals after watching that, or maybe not. Uh, but in the same way, submitting to his will means detoxing through his instructions and saturating yourself with them over time so that you start to want what he wants and connect with his thoughts. But so often we're relying on our logistics or comforts to get by, and we're anxious all the time because of that. Whose will is governing your life? I'm a horrible cook. Uh, sometimes I would have some free time to put a meal together for Amy and me in the evening. But then I would get an urgent text from Amy, who's rushing home from work. She writes, please, please, I beg of you, Joshua, don't cook. Did you get my text? Please let me cook. And you know it's serious when she says, Joshua. One of the reasons I think my food turns out so unique is that I treat cooking like abstract art. Uh, I open up a recipe, and if it calls for a teaspoon of fish sauce, I read that as, sprinkle as much of this thing as you feel looks beautiful in the pot. And when I serve the finished product to Amy, she eats a few spoonfuls in silence and walks away. Somebody put their heart and dedication into detailing particular instructions to create their beloved dish. They labored over every ingredient and tested what would be the most satisfying outcome for people to enjoy something so precious to them. And for some reason, I decide it would be best if I went rogue. How often do we believe that our life turns out best 
when it's up to us and our wisdom. God, out of his goodwill and compassion, drew out line by line how he wants us to be shaped in his promises and commands as his image bearers. But we ignore that. Would you consider what it means to read and wrestle with his revealed will regularly so that it starts to change what you look like? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. The concept of this book is a senior demon writing letters to his nephew with advice about how to tempt a human. So in the book, God is described as the enemy. And they have to keep people away from him. Here's one observation that this demon makes in one of his letters. And you have to kind of imagine an evil character who hates God and people. But he writes, I know that the enemy wants to detach men from themselves in a way. Remember always that he really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks of losing, they're losing themselves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I'm afraid, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. He's noticing that God pulls people away from self-will because he loves them so much. And it's only when we surrender our ambitions and submit to his desires that we become more and more ourselves and less and less shaken inside. Will you let that shape you in that way? That's the law is God's will. Second, the law is God's perfection. When the text says that the law of the Lord is perfect, it's saying that it doesn't lack anything. There's no blemish in it. But what it's not saying is that the Bible is some kind of exhaustive textbook, right? It doesn't contain all the answers about science or business or politics like Google. That's not what it means by perfect. The kind of perfection this text is referring to is a wholeness, a completeness that lasts forever in the soul. Uh, it's more like the word shalom which means eternal peace and goodness. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, if the Bible was simply another Google, that would be cool. Uh, but in the end, it would only produce more perfectionism, not perfection, and there's a difference. Uh, right? Perfectionism will always be external, making sure the right pieces are in place so that we look put together. It's maintaining all the safeguards to keep ourselves going, and that get pretty heavy for us. But the perfection of Scripture is something that fortifies the core of you, even when the external is chaotic. Uh, it fortifies the core of you with reliable truth, so that even when you face confusion, you have this inner assurance that the world can't take away. Let me put it this way. Perfectionism is you holding the world. Perfection is perfect God holding you. And that's a different feeling inside. His comfort, his challenge, his conviction, his compassion, his correction, his cleansing, and his calming, just building up inside of us over time. Things we can't get anywhere else. I read a random YouTube comment on a music video, got about 1,600 likes, and it said this about the singer. Your voice is like going home while the sun is setting down low, and it's warm and it's sweet, and finally I'm at peace and feel complete by myself. And one of the replies said, facts. 
the commenter was not saying that everything's all right in the world. No, they were saying that in this moment, they could find some solace despite what's happening in the world. And God wants to answer that part of you consistently. That's what the world can't reach to bring that wholeness back into you through word and community. Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest French physicists and mathematicians of all time, he wrote this reflection in the 17th century. He said, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things the help he cannot find since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. He's saying that we have this vacuum in us, this craving to feel truly happy and secure. And we're searching infinitely to fill that, but the only infinite person that can answer that for us is our God. And once that really sinks in, once that hits us, we realize how crucial it is for us to dwell in God's word together. Don't ignore the longings in you, and don't try to cover them up with things that don't last. That's another part of the law giving life. And lastly, the law is God's restoration. So we looked at being in the Word to conform to His will and to receive His perfection in our souls, but how exactly does it give us life practically as we read and pray together? Well, the key is in this word, revives. In the Hebrew, that word is often used to talk about repentance and forgiveness. Uh, the word could also mean convert or turn away from. David uses that word in Psalm 51 after he commits that horrible sin against Bathsheba. In his confession, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That word restore is the same Hebrew word here for revive. See, one major way in which God brings life into our souls is through restoration from sin. See, oftentimes discerning his will and receiving perfection, it comes through the law exposing our messed up parts and making us realize we need somebody to help us. And the Holy Spirit starts a cycle of repentance and forgiveness in us at that point. There's a famous book for Alcoholics Anonymous groups. Sometimes it's called The Big Book. And it details the AA program for addiction recovery. And when it was written first in 1939, it described the story of how the first 100 AA participants got sober. And over the years, so many people saw themselves in these stories that now the text is used to serve people all around the world. Step five of the AA 12-step program says this, admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And here's what the big book says about that. The real tests are your own willingness to confide and your full confidence in the one with whom you share your first accurate self-survey. Even when you found that trusted person, it frequently takes great resolution to approach him or her. No one ought to say the AA program requires no willpower. Here is one place you may require all you've got. Happily, though, the chances are that you will be in for a very pleasant surprise. When your mission is carefully explained and it's seen by the recipient of your sharing how helpful he can really be for you, the conversation will start easily and will soon become eager. Before long, your listener may well tell a story or two about himself 
which will place you even more at ease. Provided you hold back nothing, your sense of relief will mount from minute to minute. The damned up emotions of years break out of their confinement and miraculously vanish as soon as they are exposed. As the pain subsides, a healing tranquility takes its place. And when humility and serenity are so combined, something else of great importance is apt to occur. Many an AA, once agnostic or atheistic, tells us that it was during this stage of step five that he first actually felt the presence of God. And even those who had faith already often become conscious of God as they never were before. Why is it that so many people feel God's presence and their loved one's presence most powerfully in this stage of confession? And it's because when they finally admit that they need help in life and reveal that to somebody, they're opening themselves up to being truly known. They're saying to somebody, this is me. And when they're not rejected for it, it starts to become freeing. This is that famous Tim Keller quote that we say a lot, but really sit on this for yourself, child of God. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is freedom, and that's what you have in God. Church, God's word is supposed to convict us of our shortcomings. It calls us out on our messed up areas. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. It's calling us to humbly admit that we don't have everything together, that we've hurt ourselves and others. It's pushing us to repent of our idols, our selfishness, our greed, and our ego, and bring our brokenness to God's mercy seat, not our social media selves. Some of you are putting yourselves in a neat package, even before God. No, he wants to love the real, real you. Psalm 51 says this, you will not delight in sacrifice. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So let the word pierce you, allow it to do that. But then what does it say directly after that passage in Hebrews 4? It says, all are exposed and naked before the word of God. And then it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. After you've been confronted with your sins, we run to Christ. We tell him we need help. And if, we, uh, and if we know that we've hurt somebody else, we ask him for the courage to confess to them at the right time. And it's in these moments of repentance uh, that we might be surprised at how gracious he truly is. Family of God, you can't fix or hide your issues. Stop trying to do that because you're going to end up feeling more and more lonely and worse about yourself. Have full confidence that Christ can handle whatever you're dealing with and throw all your dirt onto him and let his forgiveness wash over you. Somebody said this to me, Josh, grace has the final word over you, not judgment. Receive that grace in raw confession and entrusted people in your life and that will soften you. Let me close with this. When Jesus got arrested at the end of his life, 
people came up to his disciple Peter and asked if he knew Jesus. And Peter denied the Lord three times. And after the third time, a rooster crowed and Jesus looked at him. And Peter remembered that Jesus predicted that would happen, that he would betray his Lord. So he went outside and wept bitterly out of extreme guilt. Sometime later, after Jesus died and rose, he appeared to his disciples and spent some time with them before ascending to heaven. And there's a scene in John 21 where Jesus has a private conversation with Peter during this time. He asks Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And Jesus asks again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. And finally, Jesus asks a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter's hurt because Jesus keeps asking him the same thing. And he responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. What's so beautiful about this little section is that by asking Peter if he loves him, Jesus isn't shaming him. No, he's inviting him back into an intimate relationship. Do you love me? Because I still love you. And he does it three times. For each time Peter denied Jesus in the past, Jesus answers by bringing him back into his arms and calling him again. Family of God, Christ, our great physician, is not surprised by your brokenness, by your incompleteness. He's eager to see your shameful parts so that he could treat you with gentle grace. That's why he held on to that cross. Turn from your self-reliance and recommit yourself to him. So, so what did we see today? The law of God is life-giving because it conforms us to his will, fills us with his perfection, and a major way in which he does that is through our daily repentance and forgiveness and grace. In two weeks, we'll look at the second part of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Listen to this hymn by Edwin Hatch. Breathe on me, breath of God, Fill me with life anew, that I may love the way you love and do what you would do. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with you the perfect life for all eternity.